we don't want just to put leaders who are there who have killed people who have ordered rape who have orchestrated deaths uh who who have looted and have funds you know all over the world we should not be morally okay with having such leaders it should bug us it should it should make us uncomfortable because that leader should not represent us but if we're quiet about it then it means this leader represents you know us you are listening to Think African, a seasonal podcast engaging African thinkers and doers on what it means to think African. I'm your host, JD Ramalab. A broken heart emoji can often be one of the first things that come to mind when people think of South Sudan. The world's youngest nation, after being traumatized by years of war, held so much promise when it gained independence from Sudan a decade ago. Many people, especially Africans, had hoped that South Sudan would be an example of a second chance for the continent, one where all the lessons left behind by 50 years of failed states and democracies would be applied. South Sudan offered a fresh start, a blank slate. Some of the best thinkers in the world rushed over to be part of its history and be counted among those who would lay the foundations of this fledgling model African country. It was a modern day version of the gold rush. Then the country's ruling elite did what so many hoped would not come to pass. They plunged the country into a civil war less than two years after South Sudan's crisp new flag had been raised. An estimated 385,000 people were killed in a bloody war between the Nuer and the Dinka tribes on the 15th of December 2013. A battle with an ethnic facade, but built on politics and greed. Some 4 million people were displaced and have been living in near-famine conditions since the fighting first erupted. The ensuing insecurity attracted negotiators, humanitarians, peacekeepers, businessmen, many different types of people who benefited from South Sudan's chaos in some way. Insecurity for sale. There were pockets of pause, of some reprieve from intense violence. But in 2016, the Battle of Juba erupted, reigniting the fight between rival factions of the Sudan People's Liberation Army, SPLA, loyal to President Salva Kiir and Vice President Riek Mashar. South Sudan's shiny future was tarnished as the country's leaders wrestled over money and power. Meanwhile, the nation's youth were busy planning how to rebuild the country their leaders were tearing apart. In this week's episode of Think African, we speak to Dr. Ayakchol Deng Alak, a medical doctor and co-founder of Anadaban, an artist collective based in South Sudan that uses creative arts to discuss issues of social justice and government accountability in the country. Okay, so my name is Ayak, Ayakchol Deng Alak. I'm doing what is more of an octopus effect right now. I'm researching in clinical epidemiology, but I'm also the co-founder of Anataban Arts Initiative, which is a South Sudanese youth movement and an active member of civil society 
Dr. Ayak Chol Deng Alak sees her story as a typical one for a young South Sudanese. It started in a refugee camp. For her, it was in Gambela, Western Ethiopia, in a town called Itang on the banks of the majestic Baru River near the border with South Sudan. I had lived the classic South Sudanese story of being born in a refugee camp, to a father who was a general in the army, you know, to a mother who was with the women's movement, and then, you know, did the whole migration to Cuba, Latin America, then came back, found ourselves in Kenya while my father was in prison. So it's just the classic struggle story, you know. The firstborn child of Dr. and Army General Chol Deng Alak and Teresa Modesto, Ayak says she learned the value of using her voice to speak truth to power from her parents. They are the reason that I found myself in activism, because they come from activist backgrounds that later became political backgrounds, uh, both of them. And they have been very vocal, you know, I've seen them being very vocal on several platforms. I've seen them, you know, disagree, critique uh, without fear of repercussion. And that is, is something that I grew up around. And I just found myself walking in their footsteps as well. Both Ayak's parents were active members of the Sudan People's Liberation Movement and had been instrumental in the drafting and signing of the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, or CPA, between the SPLM and the government of Sudan in January 2009. The breakthrough document that ended the generations-long North-South Sudan civil war and set the tone for South Sudan's independence referendum. Ayak admits that at first, she was bewildered by the idea of separation from the North. I was a little bit confused in the beginning because I was thinking, why are we giving up our land? Because, you know, if you go back to history, the Arabs migrated and also the African uh, people were pushed more southwards. So I also had the sense of, I still do have a sense that we have lost uh, a land that is ancestral, culture, heritage that, you know, is now only claimed by Sudan, you know, like Medawi and the Nuba kingdom in the north and all those things and the war for the independence of Sudan. Revolution movements like the white flag, which was a South Sudanese led revolution movement that you rarely hear about. A lot of things like that were, were some of the reasons that I, I did feel some type of way about us separating. But by the time South Sudan declared independence in July 2011, Ayak understood that separation was the only option for South Sudan. The country did not have military strength nor financial capacity to compete with the powers in the north. Even after independence, they were at a disadvantage. But still, people celebrated. Ayak watched the jubilant crowds on television. It was so, so, so emotional. <laughs> it was so emotional. It was so emotional. To me, it was the end of all the, you know, of, of not having a place to call home. As somebody who lived in Khartoum, as a second-class citizen, 
uh, as somebody who lived in Khartoum, who was once lashed 40 canes because I was wearing trousers in, vi in violation of Islamic Sharia law, independence had a lot, a lot of meaning to me. Then 2013 happened. I didn't see it coming. I didn't see it coming at all. I didn't see it coming at all. It was the biggest shock. I was so angry. I, it still gets, I still get emotional about it because, you know, here you have a clean slate. South Sudanese were elated. People came from all over the world. One gentleman who was a Harvard graduate, not PhD, but he had graduated from Harvard. And he was uh, sitting in an office somewhere in Yambio with no electricity because he was coming back home. There was that sense of urgency to rebuild. And so we had all the intellectual, all the cadres, you know, the people with the capacity. My, my biggest bragging point was we are, we're starting from zero. We're not reforming, we're forming. So that's a plus, because when you, when you have to reform, you have to deform and construct. There's a system in place that you have to destroy first. But we are, we are forming from scratch. That's a plus. But despite the seemingly fresh foundation South Sudanese were hoping to build their new nation on, old grudges and struggles for power brought rot to their plans. In July 2016, tensions culminated in a deadly shootout between forces loyal to rival leaders President Salva Kiir and Vice President Riek Machar, ironically, while they engaged in peace talks inside the presidential office. This time, Ayak was there. I was uh, in Numule doing medical-related work. I was um, equipping medical facilities with testing kits for human African trypanosomiasis uh, in, in the in Eastern Equatoria region. And then the war broke out. I remember like I snuck out of uh, Numule because I was at the border. It was horrific because nobody saw it coming. It was looking like things were going to get better. Maybe... If, if I had paid attention, maybe I would have seen the signs because at that time I was trying to get some organizations to support uh, a project I was working on at the Ministry of Health. And they were pretty hesitant, you know. So in hindsight, maybe, maybe some people saw it coming. But again, from an optimistic point of view at that time, it was just like, OK, Riak is back in town Salfa is here. Yes, there's some tensions. There are bound to be tensions, but they're going to iron it out. Soon after the Battle of Juba broke out, Ayak traveled to Kenya through a project initiated by the Norwegian People's Aid. There, she met up with other South Sudanese activists during a workshop facilitated by Power, focused on using arts and culture to foster social change. So we sat there and we were feeling very broken. I was feeling very broken, purposeless. I was just like, whatever, let's just get this out of the way. You know, I too was inspired by this presentation done by Power on how they maneuvered their political space, how they, they used their artwork. Uh, and it, it did speak to us. It did speak to us because here we were artists and we were all thinking how we could work we could get our work recognized individually, but they worked as a collective and it was purpose-driven and they somehow managed 
we were inspired by that. And we said, well, this is something that we could, you know, tailor to suit our context, right? This is something that we can work with. And I think that's where Anataban was born from, because we also said we didn't want it. We wanted to be a name that everybody uh, recognized and identified with. We didn't want to be a classist movement. We didn't want to be a classist movement. We wanted to be a movement that everybody could identify with, irrespective of, you know, your ethnicity or your religious background, whoever you are, it was something that you could identify with. And that's how Anataban was born, and that's how we chose the name Anataban. Junubin, Kuliyom, Mot, Mot, Lemtenia, Juana, Nagul Salam, Salam, Mitena Salam, Dayidi, Yelduna, Fihurubwa, Nerebi, Fihurubwa, Kaman, Namut, Fihurub, Lekulu, Janubi, Yamut, Kitam, and Junub, Nabimut, Nagri, Lemten, Ulewen. The first song is such a powerful song. It said it has a dance, you know, an Afro-urban dance feel. Uh, you could play it in the dance club. It's, you know, it's child-friendly. It's catchy. But it's, it, you know, it also is also it also sticks to you. When the music dies, you will sit and it, you will ruminate with it. That was carefully planned before the release of the song. That's how we chose the name Anataban, which is I am tired. It's not I'm fed up. It's not, it's not a fist up type of resistance uh, name. It's more of, it feels, you know, when you, when you hear the name, it feels like a surrender because we also didn't want to sound threatening, but also it was, it's a name that, that also provokes questions. So you're tired, then what, right? And, and so, and so that's how we chose uh, the name Anataban and started on the messaging right away. Since then, Anataban has grown into a movement of over 800 active registered members. Youth spread across South Sudan, including chapters in Kakuma Refugee Camp in Kenya, Gambela Refugee Camp in Ethiopia, and in Khartoum, Sudan. The movement is composed of a diverse group of young people from different ethnicities, all working towards a common goal. Instead of looking at their ethnic differences as a source of conflict, the group uses it to promote and advance social change. I still get some privilege because of just being Dinka. It takes a lot to accept that. It takes a lot. It takes a lot. But, but that's the reality. It also makes you uh, sensitive to other privileges that uh, one might have or others around you might have, and how those privileges we can then use in our favor. And those are the things that also in Anataban, we're very conscious about mapping out our privileges based on who we are and our ethnicities, who our, ethnicities, who our parents are, our educational background, who are related to all that, and seeing, you know, who is the person that we're going to take lead in activity X, Y, Z, because of that level of privilege that they may have 
uh, that kind of will cushion them a little bit than if it was somebody else in that space. Through their work, Anna Daban hopes to change the minds of young people about the politics of power and being more effective leaders than the ones they grew up with. It's about targeting people's thinking. The leaders that are here today, they're not going to be there forever. And, you know, based on theories of change, if you're able to change the mindset of 8% of a population, you're well on your way to a paradigm shift. It just means that we need uh, more people honing in the same messaging from different platforms. Despite efforts by various international peace negotiators, so far none have been able to hold South Sudan's politicians to account. Ayak says it's up to the people to do so. We want to have uh, leaders that, you know, we can be proud to follow. We don't want just to put leaders who are there, who have killed people, who have ordered rape, who have orchestrated deaths, who who have looted and have funds, you know, all over the world. We should not be morally okay with having such leaders. It should bug us. It should it should make us uncomfortable, because that leader should not represent us. But if we're quiet about it, then it means this leader represents uh, the you know us, and that's why. Social change, that's why it has to come from the mass. These leaders will die. If we're targeting the the leaders, honestly, nothing will change. But if we're targeting the masses, we have a better, we have a, a leader that better reflects who we are, right? And such leaders do exist in South Sudan. Dr. Ayak Choldeng Alak says she finds inspiration from a number of women in the country's revolution, including Aga Gum, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, Abdel Nasser, and Thomas Sankara, amongst others. Because of these figures, Ayak believes there is still hope for the future for her country, Africa, and the world's youngest nation. Yes, we have a way out if we're not caught up in this inferiority complex that we've been that has been shoved down our throats through, you know, other vices including religion and education and this sense of glorification of the west and the white man. Uh absolutely, we have our ways. We're an ancient civilization. Um we have made advances in science. You know, we had the first caesarean section in Uganda way before Caesar even knew there was a caesarean section. We have people in this continent who have lived in different, different topographies and they have lived and thrived where people wonder how do people even do this. We need to honestly embrace our technologies and we need to develop them. We need to invest in them we are better able to negotiate so that the current situation is phased out into a situation where we are self-reliant and self-sustainable and positive contribution uh, contributors uh, to the global economy and not um, and not just a base for raw materials and and manpower you know Next time, and in our final episode of this series of Think African, we speak to Professor Naminata Diabate, Associate Professor of Comparative Literature at Cornell University, 
about the history of naked protests on the continent. I am just so tired of the West being the culprit. We are in the business of exploiting one another. That's what human, you know, women relations are based on. Geopolitics has never been about charity. France is not dealing with the Ivory Coast because they love Ivorians. The United States is not trading with Kenya because of benevolence. So geopolitics has never been about charity. It's up to Africans to redefine the relationship that they want to entertain with the world and stop expecting that the world is going to treat us with fairness. Until then, merci, obrigado, gracias, bayadanki, realiboja. Tenki siabonga. Asante kwa kusigiliza. Shukran iaila arestim maikum. Thank you for listening. Think African.